It's found on page 833 in the Church Bible. Colossians 1, starting at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you very much, Ruby. Well, let's, um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you caused the early church to record the essentials of our faith in the words of the creed. So please uh, draw near to us this morning and open our minds to understand it. Open our hearts to believe it and change our behavior that we might live as those who belong to the one true living God. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday morning, we we looked at the way that the creed begins. Uh, We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And this morning, we're looking at the second half of that sentence which reads, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I know I don't need to tell you that Jesus is the most impressive and the most important person the world has ever seen. Uh, Every single day, millions of believers around the world are praising his name, and sadly, millions of people around the world are cursing his name. So globally, Jesus Christ is either loved or dishonored. A couple of years ago, a famous painting of Jesus by Leonardo da Vinci was sold for 450 million US dollars. Highest price ever paid for a work of art. 
And today, sadly, it's hanging on a super yacht owned by a Saudi prince. I understand that the yacht is now worth at least 10 times more than it was before they put the painting on the wall. Now, when we stand and we affirm our faith by saying, as we just did, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, what we're doing is we are parting company with Judaism and with Islam. Because we don't simply believe in God or Allah, we believe also in Jesus. In fact, Jesus is quite literally at the centre of what Christians believe. And you can see that by the way that the creed is written. I wonder if you ever noticed it. Because the creed begins with just 12 words about God the Father. Then there are 73 words about Jesus. And then there are just six words about the Holy Spirit. So it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that Jesus is the focus of our faith. That doesn't, of course, mean that Jesus is more important than God the Father or more important than the Holy Spirit. No, it simply means that Jesus introduces us to both God the Father and the Holy Spirit. We, we come to the Father and we come to the Spirit through Jesus and only through Jesus. And uh, again, just by noticing the way that the Apostles' Creed is written, I'm sure you can see that it's all about what Christians call the Trinity. It's all about one God in three persons. Now, dear friends, there is no escaping the Trinity. Uh, you might think to yourself, well, it's a strange word. I've never found it in my Bible. And you won't, because it isn't in the Bible. And uh, you may just think, well, the Trinity is a very strange and probably irrelevant doctrine. But uh, let me tell you that the Trinity, the Trinity causes everything. Whether you realize it or not, the Trinity actually shapes the world in which we live. So, for example, why is it that we value relationships? Well, the answer is because we're created in the image of God, and God is three persons united in an eternal relationship of perfect love for one another. And for that reason... God has made relationships the most important thing in the universe, and it's why we value relationships so much. And of course it means, doesn't it, that in order for our relationships to be working properly and to be loving, well, we need to be walking in step with the God who's caused us to value relationships. And I'm going to say a bit more about that later on. And we can go on from there. We can say that the Father, Son, and Spirit together produce the universe. Scripture supports that. The Father, Son, and Spirit produce the scriptures. The Father, Son, and the Spirit produce salvation. And the Father, Son, and Spirit enable us to pray. Because, of course, when we pray, we pray to the Father through the Son with the help of the Spirit. 
So everything that finally matters has its origin in the Trinity. We can't escape it. We can't say, well, the Trinity doesn't really interest me. I'm going to do a little detour around that and move on to something more interesting. We can't ignore it. Equally, we can't simplify it. You know, one God, three persons. Well, it's certainly more than I can understand. Keeps us humble, doesn't it? And I like it. I like that. Because it reminds me that the Christian faith has not been invented by men. But it it challenges us. It confronts us. It comforts us. Now, the sentence in the creed we're looking at this morning is very similar to one particular sentence in the New Testament. You don't need to look it up, but I'll give it to you for your notes. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. And that verse reads, God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. And uh, that verse is recording the same three phrases we find in the creed. Puts them in a slightly different order, but they're the same three phrases. And I want to look at those three phrases with you this morning. Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. But uh, first, let's pause for just a moment. Because some of you might be thinking, well, you know, the Apostles' Creed is terribly old. And uh, old things tend to become less effective and less useful with time. Now, is that always true? Uh, Let me give you a little anecdote. Most of you, I think, will have heard of the great test cricketer Donald Bradman. Yes? Somebody nod? Yes, good. Well, in 1978, when he was 70 years old, he was invited to a dinner And uh, near the dinner venue, there were a few cricket nets. And because things were rather slow to get started with the dinner, uh, Bradman took off his coat, found a bat, and he walked over to the nets. And uh, it just so happened that Jeff Thompson was there. Uh, At that stage, Jeff Thompson was in his 20s, and he was the fastest bowler in the world. And seizing the moment, uh, Jeff Thompson found a cricket ball and started bowling to the great Donald Bradman. And there was Bradman, age 70, uh, no helmet, no pads, no gloves, and uh, he stood at the crease to face him. Of course, the dinner guests were absolutely fascinated to see what would happen, so they all gathered round, and they watched in amazement as Jeff Thompson fired these hectic deliveries down towards Donald Bradman. And every time... Donald Bradman danced down the wicket, no pads, no gloves, no helmet, and he smashed every ball right out of the middle of the bat. Why am I telling you that? Well, of course, it's a terrible sermon illustration, but don't write things off just because they're old. You know, the Apostles' Creed is old, but it's essential, and it's absolutely as relevant for our faith today as it was when it was first written. So, first, three three phrases we're looking at this morning. Number one, Jesus Christ. Now, friends, it is not difficult to say this, even if you're an atheist. I believe in Jesus Christ. 
Because it's, it's not hard to say you believe there was somebody who lived a very long time ago called Jesus Christ. It's not hard to say that Jesus of Nazareth is a real historical person. That means, of course, that a non-Christian can walk in here, join us on Sunday morning, and say with the rest of us, I believe in Jesus Christ. Of course, there are always going to be controversial people who question the historicity of Jesus, and maybe they fool numbers of us. But, friends, I've got to tell you, there are no mainstream historians who doubt the historicity of Christ, none. And there are plenty of historians from the first and second century who confirm that Jesus was a real historical person. But you and I not only believe in Jesus of Nazareth as a historical person uh, who ate and drank and slept and wept. No, we revere the name Jesus because the name Jesus, like the name Joshua, means saviour. And uh, it's not an accident that he had the name Jesus because God told his parents to name him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. So friends, can you see that every single word in the Apostles' Creed is loaded? And when we stand up and we say, we believe in Jesus of Nazareth, we're saying, actually, we believe in the Saviour of Nazareth. But we also say we believe in Jesus Christ. And the word Christ is a very significant word. It's not his surname. It's not how you would look him up in the telephone directory. No, it means Jesus, the Messiah. And the word Messiah means anointed one. So Christians believe in Jesus, the anointed one. And you may remember from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, that when Jesus was baptized, God anointed him with the Holy Spirit in order that he would be equipped for his life's work. And then a bit later, when Jesus was preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, Jesus began by saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me so that I might preach the good news. So when we stand and we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, we're saying we believe in the Savior and we're saying we believe in the Messiah, the one who was anointed by God for a totally unique work. Now, stay tuned, just just pinch yourself, I want you to stay very closely with me here. Because when we say these words, we need to distinguish in our minds between natural and supernatural speech. What do I mean? Well, on the one hand, it's perfectly possible, you see, for an actor to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He could say that in a film. He could say it in a play. But he'd simply be acting. There'd be no supernatural work of God, no work of grace causing the actor to believe with conviction and joy. 
And you and I need to learn to distinguish between that kind of speech, which does not reflect the work of God, and the speech which does reflect the work of God. Because when you stand up and you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, and you speak with real conviction in your heart and in your mind, that is because Almighty God has done a supernatural work in you. So you no longer think of Jesus as just being kind of an interesting person in the line of history. No, you now see yourself as utterly belonging to him. He's no longer someone you just think about now and again. No, he's become the center of your world. And you know that you belong to him. Now, there's a terrific example of exactly what we're talking about in the Gospels. Uh, which talk about a time when the Apostle Peter was walking along with Jesus and the disciples. And you may remember, Jesus says to the disciples, you know, what are people saying about me? And uh, they replied, well, some people think you're a prophet, Um, others think you're John the Baptist, back from the dead. And Jesus said, well, okay, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And in that moment, Jesus, who's who's delighted, he's, he's filled with joy. He says, Peter, flesh and blood could not explain that to you. You didn't work this out because you're brilliant. It's not because you've been to Bible college. This is the work of God. My Father has revealed that to you. Bible reference, Matthew 16, verse 17. Now today, friends, this is happening all the way around the world as people have been working through the word one-to-one, which Alice and Michael were talking about in Family Focus. And you see, the reason that the word one-to-one is so effective, it's being used in 80 countries around the world, is not because it's a course that was put together by some exceptionally clever, clever person. No, it's effective because it opens up the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel, God shows us who Jesus is, why he came, and how we can be confident that Jesus rose from the dead, having paid for our sins, and is alive today. And there are some absolutely marvelous testimonies on their website, if you look at it, of people who've been reading through this material suddenly the lights go on for them and they kind of leap out of their seats because they're so very thankful and they're so very excited. And that is a work of God. So when you and I stand up in church and say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and we really mean it from our hearts, there is a sense in which that is a miracle. Because we're no longer thinking of the Jesus of history. We're thinking of the Jesus who's invited us into fellowship with himself. And uh, we're not only able to say we believe in him, but also that we belong to him. So that's the first thing. We believe in Jesus Christ. Second thing, his only son... How important is it for us to say in the creed that Jesus is God's only son? 
Well, can you see that it immediately separates him from us? You see, as soon as we say that Jesus is God's only son, well, we're saying that he's utterly unique, aren't we? Of course, we know that everybody in the world is part of God's creation. And everybody who's put their trust in Christ is one of God's children by adoption. But only Jesus is God's son forever. And uh, this little phrase, his only son, appears in the New Testament five times. It's always in the writings of John. And literally, the phrase means one and only. So uh, the most famous occurrence, I'm sure you're ahead of me, is John 3.16, which says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, the question we need to ask at this point is, how long has the Father had a Son? Because if you think that the Father gained a son when Mary gave birth to a baby boy, you're making a mistake. The father has always had a son. The son only appeared in this world when Mary gave him birth, but he is God's son going backwards and forwards in time. Going back into eternity past and going forwards into eternity Future. He has no beginning. He's eternal. And uh, it's the strange language that some of you may have come across in the prayer book, which says that Jesus is eternally begotten, which sometimes confuses people. But that phrase, eternally begotten, simply means that he is eternally belonging to, eternally related to the Father. Jesus has always been his son. He will always be his son. If you like, he is the forever son of God. So so when you put your trust in Jesus and you, you receive him, you are related to and you belong to the forever son of God. And when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, you are acknowledging him to be absolutely unique. And it's a very wonderful and worshipful thing to say. Now, of course, I know it's possible to say the creed uh, with your lips and to tune out completely. Uh, We're all frail, we're all human, we're all wayward. So it is possible, of course, to say the creed and not mean it. But when we say the creed with understanding and with concentration and with delight, we are saying we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, and we are super privileged to belong to him. And that then brings us to the third little phrase we're looking at this morning. Our Lord, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And you might be thinking, well, move on, Simon. This doesn't need any explanation at all. I completely understand it. But I just want to remind you that the word Lord is an astonishing word in the Bible. Uh, It's astonishing because 
in the second century before Christ, so roughly 250 BC, a group of clever scholars were gathering together to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And um, they were looking for a word to replace Yahweh. Yahweh is the Hebrew word for God. They wanted a Greek word for that. And the word that they chose was a word which means Lord. And that is why in the Old Testament translation of your Bible, the God of Israel, the maker of heaven and earth, is often referred to as Lord. Now, when they came to write the New Testament and they wanted a word to describe Jesus, they unashamedly chose exactly the same Greek word. They wrote about Jesus, the Lord. Because, of course, as far as the New Testament writers are concerned, Jesus is God. He shares the same identity as the God of Israel in the Old Testament. And it's very interesting, you'll find as you read the the New Testament that the the writers of the New Testament sometimes take a passage from the Old Testament that was all about Yahweh, the God of Israel, and they apply it to Jesus. So, for example, Psalm 110 uh, in the Old Testament says, the Lord sits at God's right hand. And in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, end of the chapter, we read that Jesus sits at God's right hand. Or again in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, it says, call on the Lord and be saved. Romans chapter 10 says, call on Jesus and be saved. Or again, Isaiah 45 says, every knee will bow before God And Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow before Jesus. So so the New Testament, unashamedly, gladly, confidently, clearly declares Jesus to be God. Which means, of course, that among all the religious leaders of the world, Jesus is utterly in a class of his own. When we say we believe in Jesus, our Lord, we're saying we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is our God. And that fits actually beautifully with the teaching of Jesus. Because again and again, Jesus would use language which revealed that he thought of himself as God. For example, he called himself the shepherd, knowing full well that in the Old Testament... The shepherd is God. He called himself the bridegroom, knowing full well that in the Old Testament, the bridegroom is God. And it not only fits the teaching of Jesus, it fits the behavior of Jesus as well. Because Jesus forgave people for their sins against God And he willingly accepted the worship which was exclusively reserved for Almighty God. So you pull all this together. Not only do we believe in Jesus, the man, the historical figure from Nazareth, a human like us, 
But we also believe in Jesus, the Messiah, anointed by God for a unique work. We also believe he's the Son of God, God himself, come into this world. And we also believe he is the Lord, the God of Israel in the Old Testament. So he's 100% human, he's 100% God. And that leaves us with just one little word in our phrase this morning, and it's the little word, are. Jesus, are, Lord. That is an absolutely vital word, because in the creed, when we say Jesus Christ, our Lord, it implies that we are a surrendered people. See, it's not something, that is it, that an unbeliever could say and mean. It's not something the devil could say and mean. I mean, there is a sense in which the devil might say, well, we know he's the Lord, but we're against him. But the believer says, no, he is our Lord, and we have surrendered to him. And of course, that is precisely what God is looking for, isn't it? He looks for our surrender. He's not simply looking for your approval. And the day comes when you literally, or in your heart, kneel down and you surrender to Jesus. Now, friends, I can't tell you how important this is because uh, you may remember in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says on the last day, Many people will say to him, Lord, didn't we do all these marvellous things? You know, we were members at St Barnabas. We went to the midweek Bible study. You know, we tithed regularly. But they hadn't surrendered to him. And Jesus says, on that day, I will say plainly, I never knew you. Or even more searchingly, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Plain, which is in Luke Chapter 6, he said, Why do you call me Lord, but do not do what I tell you? Of course, that's an extremely searching question, isn't it? Because none of us perfectly do what Jesus tells us consistently all the time. We don't. And thankfully, of course, uh, we're not saved by our obedience. I hope you don't think that. We're saved by his obedience. And we're not damned by our disobedience. He's already taken our damnation for us. But let me say this. If we genuinely have surrendered to his lordship, there should be new signs of obedience in us. You know, By the grace of God, we'll find ourselves more and more becoming an obedient people because he is our Lord. Now, what does all this mean for you and me this morning? Well, at the beginning of the third century, a man called Hippolytus was writing a book about life in the early church. And there's a fascinating place where he describes how the early Christians practiced Baptism, and I'm going to ask BC to put what he says on the screen. So this was Hippolytus, and he said this. On the eve of Easter Sunday, 
A group of believers has stayed up all night in a vigil of prayer, scripture reading, and instruction. The most important moment of their lives is fast approaching. For years, they've been preparing for this day. When the rooster crows at dawn, they're led out to a pool of flowing water. They remove all their clothing. The women let down their hair and remove their jewelry. They renounce Satan and are anointed from head to foot with oil. They are led naked into the water. Then they're asked a question. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? They reply, I believe. And they're plunged down in the water and raised up again. They're asked a second question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord? Again, they confess, I believe. And again, they're immersed in the water. Then a third question. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? A third time they cry, I believe. And a third time they're immersed. When they emerge from the water, they're again anointed with oil. They're clothed, blessed, and led into the assembly of believers where they will share for the first time in the Lord's Supper. That's marvellous, isn't it? You see, what it's saying is that in the early church, the creed was very much a part of the baptism ceremony. But here's the question. Here is the question. Why did they baptise new Christians naked? I want you to listen to me extremely carefully here. See, the culture in the ancient world was deeply divided. Uh, There were huge divisions, social divisions, between men and women, rich and poor, slave and free, um, Jew and Gentile. And the way you told a person's social status was by their clothing. But you see, the Christian community rejected all of those distinctions. So all Christians were baptised. All Christians surrendered their lives to the same Lord... And you see, when they went naked into the water for baptism, well, nobody could tell, could they? Whether you were rich or poor or slave or free, couldn't tell. That was the point. In other words, the the early church, you see, embraced a radical equality. They saw themselves as equals. And with all of those kind of social distinctions removed, what it meant was that they were able to start loving one another sacrificially in the way Jesus commands. Now, friends, you know, as well as I do, that Cape Town is also a deeply divided society. Constitutionally, apartheid might be off the statute books, but sadly, you know, many of the divisions that were around in those terrible years, well, they're still with us, aren't they? and the attitudes that lie behind them. But there is absolutely no room for any of that in God's church. Now, if you happen to have put your name down for baptism in February, don't panic. 
We're not going to ask you to go into the pool naked. But if you do stand up and you say that Jesus Christ is our Lord, can I say that you and I need to examine our hearts extremely carefully and make sure that we are removing, well, not our physical clothing, but any spiritual clothing that threatens the unity and relationships in our church family. I'm not saying you have got those things, but the start of the year is a brilliant time to ask ourselves those questions, isn't it? See, these things can become so much a part of us, we're not even aware of them. But I want to encourage all of us to ask the Lord to show us any divisive attitudes or prejudices or resentments towards other people in this church family so that we can repent of those things and ask for the Lord's forgiveness and healing and uh, ask the Lord Jesus day by day to help us put those things to death because if they've been with us a long time, they're not going to go away quickly. This is important, you see, because if we know about them, but we're actually secretly holding on to those attitudes, well, we can't, can we, with integrity say, Jesus Christ is our Lord. And if we carry on like that, well, on the last day, Jesus will say to us, I never knew you. Well, let's pray together. Gracious God, we do thank you for the precious gift of your Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Please fill us with gratitude. Please fill us with confidence in your unchanging character and your very great and precious promises. Please help us to fully and joyfully surrender our lives to Jesus. And please fill us with a deep and loving concern for those who are not yet able to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And we ask it in his very precious name. Amen.